This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. He'd come to me in friendship. And the scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, uh, the host of the Remnant podcast, and I'm feeling extra remnanty today because I am talking to you from the from behind the steering wheel of our battered, rented RV in a municipal parking lot in Sandpoint, Idaho. It's a lovely, brisk morning. Um, I am joined from Washington uh, by my. Uh, Sancho Panza and Emuensis, uh, Jack Butler. Before we uh, go on, people have been uh-huh. complaining that you pronounced that word incorrectly. It's Emuensis. There are more syllables oh, okay. in it than you have been saying. Oh, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a believer in, you know, in economizing as much as possible. <laughs> it's sort of my, it's my, it's, it's, it is the correct Esperanto uh, pronunciation. Of oh, Emuensis. <laughs> if you're interested in economizing, we should move on to Newspeak then, so that words lose all their nuance. Yes, yes. Um, and we're heading that way. So, uh, for people who don't know, um, I've been on a family vacation with my uh, lovely wife and daughter and our two uh, very entitled dogs, Zoe and Pippa. And we've uh, been blazing across the country in our family truckster. Our uh, first night on the road, we slept in a truck rest stop in Beloit, Wisconsin. You know, because basically I'm just trying to follow in the footsteps of George Will. And, um, you know, and sort of live life the way he does. And since then, we've been a bunch of places. And we are heading to Oregon, Oregon, Oregon today. Um, Avoid dysentery. And we go to the Oregon State Fair, and then we're. Uh, well, is there a lot of dysentery in Oregon? Well, that's the. Uh, have you ever played Oregon Trail? I've never played Oregon Trail. Oh yeah, that's that's the disease that everyone dies of, dysentery. Ah. Uh-huh. Okay, I did not know that. Um, at least in the nineteenth. At, at, at what age? At what age do you play this game? Uh, I. I played with a version of it more updated than the one that the meme comes from. I don't know when I was like eight to twelve years old. It's how I it's how I learned all of my survivalist skills. Interesting, interesting. Because um, 
I keep hearing that this is a mostly from our um, Bismarckian mercantilist uh, colleague Raihan Salam at National Review. I keep hearing that this is a golden age in board games, and um, uh, I and on his advice, I actually got the Monopoly card game and tried to play it with my wife and daughter. It took some doing, and we're starting to enjoy it, but. Uh, we're not completely comfortable. We're not completely fluent with it yet. But these are the things you do on family vacations. I should clarify, um, Oregon Trail is a video game, not a board game. Is it a video game? Really? Uh-huh. Fascinating. Why? Why? And it was popular. Yeah, I think. I mean, I played it. And so, like, like did you, like, you what start. Did, the, what did the, you see on the screen? <laughs> well, what did you see? <laughs> the version I played, you started out, you get to choose your starting point and your profession. And then uh-huh. it just sort of, it, you, it, it flips between like a map of your progress and like more or less pretty primitive, but still uh, dynam- somewhat dynamic screens of things that are going on from either a front-facing 3D perspective or an overhead perspective when you're like fording a river or something. And ideally you want to keep all of your family alive and get to um, any of the West Coast uh, cities with really optimistic names and then start your new life. This is unbelievably consistent with my family vacation. (laughs) The (laughs) the verisimilitude is shocking. (laughs) Well... Don't, don't. I hope you keep all of your family alive. Uh, that's a primary goal, and at times in this RV, it doesn't quite feel like that's. Uh, it sometimes feels like that may be uh, a too ambitious a goal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do not. Uh, I, I'm enjoying my trip, and it's certainly an adventure in various ways. And you know, as some people know, uh, I've done many, many, many cross country drives, but doing it in this thing is different. And um, we've had some mishaps along the way. We're um, meeting up with a special mechanic in Bend, Oregon, who will fix the fact that the there's an overhead bed that lowers for sleeping at night, and it broke, and it's stuck, descended, so you cannot stand upright. It's like you're in a stress position for the, about 80% of, of the RV, and it's it's not super convenient, but fortunately, we got... I never get like the insurance stuff on normal rentals, but on this thing, I got it at the yin yang, so we should be okay. But anyhow, um, so I've been trying to—I've been on Twitter a bit, but you know there are big chunks of days where I'm either hiking with family or dogs or behind the wheel of a car, and it's hard to follow what's been going on in the news. Um, but I gather that. Um, Last week, this last week was a um, was a Bafo week for the president of the United States. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. He's uh, uh, the fake news would never tell you how great the week has been for him. Um, so it's interesting. Um, this this first of all, we're recording this on Friday. What is the date today? The seventeenth? No, this is August twenty fourth. You're a week off. Gosh, I really am. Didn't you? You well, left yeah, but, last week, didn't you? Last Friday. Yeah. So you're you're you don't you're not accountable to time at this moment. No, I really. I well, it's weird when you get out of the instantaneity of the Beltway media loop. You know, uh, you do kind of feel 
like you're sort of in a in a in sort of out of phase with your normal dimension. Um, and just waking up, you know, I wake up super early because of dogs, and um, and I'm still waking up really early here. But if I wake up at five thirty in the morning here, I've missed like two and a half hours of crazy Twitterness back east. Oh, and it's that's very a shame. Hard. I know it's very hard to figure out what the hell's going on, and you get these references to things, you know. So did 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 Trump actually sit for three hours on Fox and Friends? Uh, I actually don't know if like. That was a whole three hours. That seems... Well, I mean, there would have been commercials. It was probably like how... But the whole show was the interview. I think so, yeah. Because they kept, they kept promoting it as, you know, watch President Trump being interviewed from 6 to 9 a.m. And I kept thinking, okay, that's when Fox and Friends is on. How long is the interview? But apparently it really was the whole show. Uh, I think so, but I'm not as frequent a Fox and Friends viewer as our president is, so... Yeah, well, few people are. <laughs> That's um, true. No, because this is one of the things that drives me crazy. Is Trump is always saying how, and his and his sort of flax and Praetorians are constantly saying, you know, he's got to concentrate on North Korea. He's got to concentrate on Iran. He doesn't have time to sit down with Mueller. And you know, the entire interview with Mueller wouldn't be three hours. And I, admit, I understand he would have to prepare more than sitting down with. Ainsley Earhart, no offense to Ainsley, um, but um, uh, it does seem like there's, uh, you know, you know, and this is part of that, you know, that that incredibly stupid um, stuff from David Horowitz. You can link to it in the show notes. I might deal with it more in the G file today, but you know, where David Horowitz was saying how you know Trump works round the clock and tirelessly for the benefit of the American people. The guy watches more TV than I did when I was, you know. 17 years old and it's all nonsense you know it's all sort of just you know hate watching tv about himself he's got plenty of time to talk about talk to Mueller about these things but anyway this is a distraction um so is he supposed to fire sessions today is that what's supposed to happen um well he's laying the on twitter he is laying the the predicate for doing so but it's i don't know it's not really any different from the this, the weirdly passive-aggressive tweets he's been issuing ever since Sessions recused himself from the investigation. So, who knows? Yeah. So, this, this again, not to ping off the Horowitz thing, but I, I think that this is, you know, so, I, for backstory, about two weeks ago, I tweeted something to the effect of that Trump is a person of, of low character, or there's no definition of good character you can come up with that Donald Trump can clear. I've been saying this for years, but for whatever reason, it massively triggered all sorts of people of the sort of MAGA crowd, um, including Horowitz, including a bunch of other people. And the, the number of contortions and weird responses to this and just really blind rage. I mean, this set up, you know, I started getting all this email, you know, viciously attacking, you know, me and my family and all this crazy stuff um, in response to this. And it's also weirdly non-responsive in the sense that about a third of it is attacking my character and so therefore i have no right to judge his character as if the two quokoe argument works right i mean i i could confess to being a complete moral reprobate who goes around you know doing terrible things at the jc penny um you know uh 
junior miss department or something. Um, it wouldn't change That's my... oddly specific. <laughs> um, it wouldn't change the merit, the fact-based merits of, of, of my point about Trump. And, you know, if you want to talk, you know, come up with a good definition of good character. Is it, is it, uh, you know, I think the sex, the sex, the sex, the personal sex life stuff has sailed, right? I don't think any serious person can say that a guy whose main defense right now on the campaign finance violations is that, he didn't do this as a matter of a campaign thing because he's been paying off hookers, bimbos, and floozies, or maybe not hookers, um, uh, but bimbos, floozies, and porn stars for years, long before he planned on running for president, right? Um, he's on his third wife. He, by all reasonable assumptions, cheated on his third wife right after they had a baby. Uh, the way he treated his, you know, his first wife by having an open affair with, his sec- with what would become his second wife um, he reportedly asked his second wife to abort their daughter. So this idea that like he's a good family man goes out the window too. Um, people say, well, he loves his kids. Well, does he? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he does. But you know, Don Corleone loved his kids. Um, loving your kids is not exactly a high bar of morality or character. It is, you know, it's sort of what we it. It's sort of the least you can do in <laughs> conversations about characters. You're, you're supposed to love your kids. You're not supposed to go around trying to get credit for it. But even so, I'm not, you know, the relationship, what I hear behind the scenes between Trump and his and, and the kids he's willing to be associated with publicly uh, is not what the propagandists want you to hear. And then there is in business dealings, the guy is a notorious double crosser. He brags about it in The Art of the Deal. He's famous legendary for not paying money he owes. He's gone into bankruptcy countless times. My point is, is that you can't come up with a definition of good character. And people just freak out about this on the right. And some say, some want to come up with some definition of character or some attribute of character that they think defines Trump. Some just want to lie and say things like Horowitz does, that he works around the clock and that he's loyal to a fault. And this, oh, that loyalty thing, right? This is the thing I think is sort of fascinating. Trump tweets that he thinks, or no, he said in the Ainsley Earhart interview, right, that he thinks flipping, i.e. snitching, should almost be illegal because he's been watching this happen for 30, 40 years. And, and this sort of gets into this thing, you know, I talk about, I have this scene in the book about, uh, you know, arguing that one of the reasons why we are, you know, witnessing maybe the suicide of the West is that we are reverting back to this ancient understanding of what politics is supposed to be. And um, you'll correct me if I get the quotes wrong, but because I know you went over it a million times for me. <laughs> but you know, that opening scene in The Godfather has Don Corleone talking to... Um, Amerigo uh, Bonacera. Amerigo Bonacera. And Bonacera wants to have his the injustice done to his daughter avenged because these two guys whose parents apparently have political connections, um, got off with a slap on the wrist after uh, apparently raping this guy's daughter. And Don Corleone gets furious and demands and and, and gets offended because basically uh, Bonacera is treating uh, Don Corleone like basically just a businessman who murders people. And Corleone subscribes to, what is the Latin phrase or the ancient Italian phrase, Roman phrase? 
see, he subscribes to this ancient pre-modern understanding of what politics is about, which is your loyalties to families, to clans, right? The original Rome, uh, Roman political system was basically competing clans or essentially tribes in glorified terms, um, the Julii and all of that. And your first loyalty to was which, whatever clan you were affiliated with. And Corleone keeps going back and forth and they're talking past each other because Bonacera says, how much should I pay you? And bonus and Corleone says, "Why do you treat me with this disrespect?" And they go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Bona, he, Corleone says, "If you had been my friend, um, these men would be suffering this very day." And what he's asking for is primary allegiance to Corleone, not to the American system of law. Corleone says, "You know, you came here. You want to be a good America. You went to the courts." You wanted to play by their rules, and this is what you got. But if you had been with me, you would have gotten justice. And and finally, Bonacera realizes what he's asking for. He's asking for him to turn his back on the American model of, of the rule of law. And he says, will you be my friend? And, that's the, and that is the, the turning away. And that's why um, Amerigo Bonacera, translated from the Italian, means good night, America. Because the American system is supposed to repudiate this idea that your first allegiance is to clan, aristocracy, family, blood ties, when it comes to matters of justice, right? It's not to say that in, your, in civil society you're not supposed to give primacy to your family. It's that as a matter of law, those sorts of things shouldn't come into play. And so, but Trump, he constantly demands personal loyalty. He constantly demands and expects that people's first allegiance should be to him. And so he praises Paul Manafort for not snitching, you know, not flipping, and calls him brave and honorable. And I personally think that if Manafort has stuff to spill, the reason he's not flipping isn't that of loyalty to Donald Trump, it's out of fear from Vladimir Putin. But, you know, who knows on that front. But the President of the United States has a duty and obligation to faithfully execute the laws. And he is basically crapping from a great height on our entire system of justice, on the assumptions of how our system of justice should rule work, and instead he's elevating this idea of personal loyalty, um, sort of this tribal loyalty to the big man above everything else. And it's shockingly outrageous to me that more people aren't outraged by it. You know, there's this thing, you know, about, you know, we expect politicians not to violate the public trust, but we also should expect the public not to violate the public trust. And lots of people, particularly on the right now, just don't care. They say, you know, you hear back and forth all the time, these issues were settled in 2016 when it was a binary choice between Hillary Clinton and, and, and Donald Trump. And what drives me crazy about that is, first of all, the friggin' election's over, right? You know, no, we've never you're be- wrong. 2016 will never end. <laughs> we've never judged sitting conservatives have never judged sitting Republican presidents by the standard of, well, at least they're better than the person they beat in the previous election. But moreover, the idea that because we knew he was a, a scummy dude when we elected him, because we didn't, we thought he would still be better than Hillary. When did that argument come to mean that we should therefore not care about any further scummy behavior? I just I don't understand where that comes from psychologically that or maybe not psychologically but logically psychologically it all makes a little more sense because it's motivated reasoning 
Um, but this idea that it is outrageous to point out these things anymore because we knew this and we made this choice is so weird. And it's particularly weird given how many people then get upset if you point it out. Right? If we all knew this when he was elected, that he was a guy of bad character, then why are you taking such unbelievable offense that anyone is pointing it out? I thought you said you knew this. You know, it's this weird Mobius strip of, of sort of you know, cranial fecal impaction that just drives me nuts. Wait, wait, wait. What did you say? Cranial fetal... Fecal. Fecal impaction. Yeah, people are putting their heads in their back holes. Oh, okay. That's a great... I'm just... I'm asking you to repeat that because that may end up being the title for this. <laughs> I um, hope. Anyway, I should probably stop ranting. I mean, I've probably lost everybody who hates this podcast when it goes into the Trump stuff anyway, but so be it. Well, I would like to add one or two things. Yes, uh, please do, because I, I know I went on there for a while. Uh, I, I have Suicide of the West right here, which you should all buy if you haven't already. Seriously. I've, I've implored... Uh, Catholic Guild uh, to get people to buy before, but Catholic Guild is in a sort of weird standing these days. So I'll just I'll just appeal to uh, Goldberg brand loyalty. Um, yeah, I mean, look at this: Judge Janine hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Is that the world you want to live in? You know, <laughs> <laughs> spent, we spent years going deep into sort of you know so sociobiology, neuroscience, uh, political philosophy. And Judge Janine no doubt dictated this thing if she wrote it at all while on a friggin' treadmill or at, at, you know, at the gym. And she goes to number one because of Donald Trump. I, I just, you know, I just don't think it's just or fair, but that's just me. Anyway, well, if, go on. If this were Glop, John or Rob would say something about how, oh, yet again, Jonah's being mistreated or treated unfairly. Um, but this isn't glop, so I'm just going to submit yeah. that comment for the record and move on. Stipulated. You know, yes, yes. Uh, but first, we should credit Paul Ray for appointing you to this scene and its meaning. Yes. Um, but yeah, you basically got it all right. But you didn't try to do a Don Corleone impression. Which no, I didn't. I might. I might. But if you would come to me for justice, those scum who own your daughter would be weeping bitter tears this day. How's that? Is that good? Not bad. It's, it's much better than I would have expected from you, given that the range of inflection in your voice usually runs the gamut to a, from A to A.1. Um, so that was, <laughs> that was pretty good. If I fortune an honest man like yourself made enemies, they would f become my enemies. And then, <laughs> believe me, they would fear you. Um, so yeah, you got it basically right. And, Nicely done. And I should say, the, the, the Trump statement about his, his anti-flipping crusade... This is another one of these weird areas where I like I get the arguments about Trump being this populist avatar, but there are just a couple, there's a handful of things where there's no plausible connection to like a populist ideology. It's just all sui generis and like being opposed to flipping. That's something that that's that's Trump swimming in the dirty waters of New York. Just see, he's saying like he had all of these friends who who were screwed by flippers like who who among us ha who, <laughs> who who are the who's the proverbial like pennsylvania mechanic who who can relate to that um this is no I, that's, a, that's a great point that gets to my point about character look at the people he surrounded himself with over 40 50 years 
He knows so many people who got busted from underlings flipping on them and turning them into the feds. Good people, normal people don't have friends where this is a common problem. Yeah, the other, another good example of this was uh, his desire to open up the libel laws. Like, that's not, right. that's a totally him thing. There's no, there's no, there's no, like, MAGA ideology, uh, abstruse reasoning, secret esoteric knowledge reason that Trump wants the libel laws open. He just doesn't like it. He just doesn't like the press and never has unless he can. When it's it critical of him. Yeah. But only when it's critical of him. He doesn't care otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there are just these well, so, things. No, that's right. I mean, but this is that gets to my point about why I always say Trumpism is more of a psychological phenomenon than a political one, because it's almost all about what his own psychological state of being is his priorities, his personal, you know, sort of lizard brain desires, and also the rationalizations that it elicits from others. And, you know, like, like Charles Kessler, who's a friend of mine and I admired for years, has um, a valiant effort in the New York Times this week arguing about how it's no big deal that President Trump is breaking norms. And he makes a perfectly fine, logical point that um, norm breaking in and of itself, this is a point that Russ Roberts makes a lot, right? Sort of like destroying traditions that are bad isn't bad, right? Violating norms that are bad isn't bad. It's, 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 you know, so norm, norm breaking, norm destroying in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It is entirely contingent upon the value and desirability or the merits of the norm itself. So, you know, destroying the norm of slavery was good, right? You know, even though slavery had a long tradition of existence. And so I agree with him on that. And then he does, you know, anytime anybody bashes Woodrow Wilson, I'm all in. But then he kind of tries to make the case that what Trump, that the norms that Trump is destroying are worthy of being destroyed. And there is an argument on a case-by-case basis for some of them about the foreign policy stuff and all and the trade stuff. I think he's wrong on the merits on most of these questions, but that's all fine. What what Charles leaves out is this stuff that we've been talking about about uh, praising you know the code of omerta among you know criminals like Paul Manafort about being against flipping. The guy is you know talking openly about the the illegitimacy of of the law enforcement. Uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, he has a duty to uh, up, you know, to make to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And yet, the norm he's establishing is that anything that's bad for Donald Trump personally is bad. That's not a great norm to create, and it's fine. And, and so, Charles ends the op-ed with saying that you know maybe you know sort of suggestive that Trump should start caring about what norms he's creating, which I think is a good point but it is a staggeringly uh underwhelming understatement <laughs> about the current situation that we're in and i i just find these kinds of rationalizations where you, you try to defend the stuff that he's doing and poo poo on the people who are you know wetting their pants about the the, the you know the violation of norms which has its place you know some people are going overboard with this stuff but you also have to take a serious accounting of what the guy is actually doing. And I don't, and it, 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 it saddens me that Charles isn't doing that because I have such admiration for Charles. But then you look at what people like David Horowitz and some of these other guys are doing, or some of the really sort of lower corporophagic phylums of Twitter, of MAGA Twitter, and their arguments. 
And you really see how it is a cult of personality thing. Anyway, enough of all that. So uh, it turns out that the the podcast with Jay Mandel was surprisingly popular, it seems. Yeah, and weirdly, I'm not just saying this because I'm a narcissist, although it doesn't prove that I'm not one. Um, th- there are people on Twitter who think that he and I sound alike, which I find strange because I don't think we do. He's much more expressive and his voice is much less robotic <laughs> than mine yeah, I is. Find that, I find that utterly bizarre. Yeah. Again, I mean, again, I haven't listened to the actual podcast because I can't do that because I can't listen to myself. Um, nor do I watch myself on TV, but Jay has got this very sort of, you know, a buoyant style of talking, particularly in, at least in person. And, you know, it comes through, he's just very animated and, you know, every now and then I feel like I have to poke you with a stick to make sure you're alive. Um, and I usually am. Usually. Um, it is weird, you know, because like when I listen to the that, you know, that, that funky weird podcast, what's it called? Weekly Substandard? I've heard of it. I have a really hard time differentiating Jonathan Last from Sonny Bunch. And they apparently have gotten this a million, this complaint a million times. And it, what's funny is that they don't sound alike in real life. But there's something that the the podcast world, technology gnomes, gremlins, you know, sy- system of pulleys uh, does that makes their voices sound alike when when they record them, and it's just weird. I do have some regrets though about I have you know one of the worst things about podcast stuff, particularly one that's done so half-assed as this one, is that you forget to ask stuff that you meant to ask a lot. And so you get these esprit de scalier moments, which is, for those who do not know, means um, technically it translates in the French to the spirit of the stairs. It's that feeling of, uh, oh, man, I should have done this. Or the jerk store called. They want you back. That's right. Exactly. And um, so, like, one of the questions I wanted to ask him was the incredible difficulty and boondoggle of getting books into airport bookstores. Oh yeah, because I thought I thought Suicide of the West was going to be in an airport bookstore because I was I was uh, traveling. I happened to be traveling right around the time that you were um, top lining or headlining all the bestseller lists, but I didn't I didn't see it there. I was disappointed. Yep. It is it is a perennial pain in the ass. Publishers apparently the my the story I have been told is that the air, the airport bookstore chains and they're like two of them i guess hudson and one other or something like that um some of them are weirdly named after news networks for reasons i don't understand yeah although those are more like the newsstand kind of places there are some actual airport bookstores but anyway um they demand such an unbelievably steep discount that it's economically allegedly not worth it but authors get furious including me that when they don't see their book in bookstores, particularly because I think it's a really good location for marketing. There are an enormous number of people who are bored at airports who wander around airport bookstores. And every time I bring it up to Jay, he's like, oh, God, the airport bookstore thing. And he walks me through it all. And he says, don't worry, it's really not a big part of sales. And I know authors, blah, 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 blah. But I just it's one of these things that like drives every author I know who's not in an airport bookstore crazy. And um, it would have been interesting to have him explain it all for the layman. Um, the other thing I wanted to get into 
was apparently the rise of independent bookstores. And I've been in a bunch of independent bookstores, admittedly, in some kind of like liberal places over the last three months. And I've seen my book in maybe one out of 10. And I just kind of curious about how all that works. Not to indulge in more grievances, but um, you oh, know, no. it turns out that... It's your podcast. Some, <laughs> no, people... Uh, some independent bookstore association types and the ABA types were telling me on Twitter that on the with the decline of Barnes and Noble and Borders and all that, the independent bookstore business is is rebounding enormously. And it would have been interesting to talk about all of that and also talk about how what that does for, you know, the marketing of books. How do you get it into those places and that kind of thing? But, you know, I was in Bozeman on this trip and the cute little uh, independent bookstore did not have my book. Um, I was in Nantucket earlier this year in the summer and none of the independent bookstores had it there. Um, and, uh, and I've been in a few other places and, you know, it's annoying. Anyhow, um, what other actions to air? No, no, no. But I, 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 but this is more of a regret because it would have been interesting to talk about. Oh, Uh, okay. A regrievance. A regrievance. That's, that's good. Um, and, uh. Um, what else is going on? Oh, for listeners who are curious, uh, there, my Twitter feed is largely pictures of my dogs in various places throughout America these days with some late night post cocktail, angry political tweeting thrown in. Be sure to check it out. It's fun for the whole family. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so, and speaking of, uh, quadrupeds, we ducked the dogs with us, but we did not bring the cats. And for those of you who may not remember, we have two cats in my house we have uh the good cat gracie who's awesome and we have my wife's cat ralph who only has eyes uh for my wife and wants nothing to do with any of the other animals in the house or with uh me or my daughter and uh jack you've been house sitting for me while i've been on the road how's all that going uh well it had an inauspicious beginning because i when I got to your house, as I was settling in, and because I'm a weird person, talking to myself, just trying to work things out, I said something kind of loudly that was, uh, I said something like, um, all right, this is good, uh, because I, I figured out like where everything was and all that. And then, out of nowhere, this female voice just splits out of the ether and says, okay, is there anything else I can do for you? And it freaked me out because I assumed I was the only <laughs> sentient being in your house. And I just desperately looked for the, the source of the voice. And then I found the monolith, the Alexa. You have, an ele- you have a digital assistant in your home. And I do not trust those things one bit. I, it was still never resolved why they were just spontaneously laughing a couple of months ago. People have forgotten about this story, but it happened. And as far as I know, no one ever explained it or solved it. They just kind of stopped. And so I immediately unplugged your digital assistant and because I have not needed to use it for anything anyway. And I don't like them because they're going to, I don't know. I, I just don't, I'm these, these big tech companies have enough of our information already. I don't know why, like they're basically recording everything that's being said in your house too now. So probably, I mean, if it maybe it'll be more convenient if you just want to have never want to leave your chair and live a sort of wally existence where all of your consumer needs are instantaneously answered and you never have to like interact with other human beings again. But that's that's not me. I'm I'm 
My name's Jack Butler. I'm I'm on a Butlerian jihad, as as is described in the Dune universe. Um, and so I unplugged your digital assistant as the first step uh, on my on my Butlerian jihad. So that's fine. That's fine. Um, I find Alexa kind of weird too. I don't. We don't use it. My, my wife uses it for like Spotify and that kind of thing, and we use it for like you know telling. Alexa, give me a 15-minute timer for, like, cooking and stuff, because we do a lot of cooking. Um, We're a watch. Then, yeah, no, I, I, look, I, I, I get it. Um, I got to say, though, the, the thing, the story, I mean, the laughing thing I just always assumed was some someone having a bit of fun at our expense thing. The, the thing that... That doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it should, but the story that really freaked me out, which has not gotten nearly the attention it should have was about a year ago um i think it was at facebook some researchers set up two computers to talk to each other for some sort of ai experiment and uh the computers invented their own language to talk to each other that the scientists had no idea how it worked and all of a sudden, these computers were talking to each other, essentially in their own language that was impenetrable to the human mind, and no one knew what they were saying to each other. And they were like, holy crap, and they unplugged them. <laughs> and I want to know more about that, because that, that, that to me is a legitimate sort of Skynet precursor stuff right there. Um, yeah, there was, an, an, there was another... Um well, first I should say, that's kind of what, supposedly, at least according to an episode of Law & Order SVU, sometimes twins, human twins, invent their own language uh, to communicate. I never did this with my twin, but or at least I don't remember doing it. I, it's possible I did it, but uh, but the other thing I wanted to mention... You, you have a twin? Twin sister, no, not a twin brother. There can't be, oh. th there couldn't be two of, of just me. That would be, oh man, the world can handle that. That would be... That would I, I got I'm just going to be flat out and say it right now. I would find that really discomforting if I found out that there was an identical version of you out there, <laughs> uh. <laughs> waiting in case anything happens to me, just waiting to take my place seamlessly. Oh, that, that reminds me. I saw this this documentary with my wife about two weeks ago. Um, identical strangers. Have you seen this? No. It's actually, so as a documentary, it's really, well, let me put it this way. The story is super compelling. And uh, basically what happened, and you know, look, I mean, it's, it's not great for the Jews, which is a standard I don't often invoke, but there you go. Um, the, apparently it's a true story. There was a famous uh, Jewish adoption service that agreed to oversee this bizarre experiment where they deliberately broke up identical twins and triplets and placed them in different kinds of families. And they even placed control kids in each of these families so they would have a baseline to compare. And they wanted to figure out the differences between nurture and nature, allegedly, the differences between nurture and nature, how much of mental health is heritable and not heritable. And uh, there are going to be some spoilers coming up in a second. Spoiler alert. So, uh... They, the main characters of this documentary, the main focus, are these triplets, these three guys, basically from Long Island, New York, who discover each other when they're like 19, 19 years old. 
and each one was put in a different kind of low class, you know, uh, poor middle class, upper class. And and at first they're excited to see each other. They go on Phil Donahue's show. They're on the cover of all these magazines. They're on the Today Show, and everyone's freaking out about how uh, how amazingly similar they are. And it's this great happy story. And then it turns kind of dark because we find out about this weird experiment. And uh, all right, so here's where the spoiler starts. I find ultimately that this thing was unbelievably intellectually dishonest because first of all they keep they they keep the they 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 withhold stuff from the audience for dramatic effect which i understand um you know the big reveal about the study comes in the middle of the thing uh the fact that one of these spoiler again one of these triplets ended up committing suicide and what's disgusting about this thing is in the last 15 minutes, they basically do this ham-fisted effort to say this all proves that it's all nurture and no nature and that there is no, um, you know, no significant genetic component to these things. Um, it's all basically the environment you come in and they basically put all of the blame for this guy killing himself on this this guy's adoptive father because he was too strict which is unbelievably cruel to do and they don't demonstrate it other than to say he was kind of strict right the other kids had mental health problems too supporting the idea that there were genetic components to all of this um but the reason why this one committed suicide was all because he had a mean dad and they don't really prove that he had a mean dad they just prove that he was strict and all in the name of sort of uh, you know, spiking the ball at the end to say that it's all nurture. And nowhere in this thing do they mention the Minnesota twin studies or any of the real serious science that shows that a huge amount of our personality and our behavior has a genetic component to it. I mean, that's where the data is. I don't like a lot of that stuff. I really am a much bigger romantic when it comes to things like free will. But the data is where the data is, or the science is where the science is. So ultimately, while it's a really interesting documentary, at the end of the day, I thought it was unbelievably intellectually dishonest and manipulative. And I immediately texted, after I saw it, uh, John Podoritz, and asked him if he saw it. And he had the exact same reaction, more or less. And I told him he should get Charles Murray to review it, because Charles knows all of that stuff about the the twin studies and, and, and all of that. And I thought it would be kind of interesting if you did. I don't know if... John followed through on that because you know it's one thing we know about Pod is he lacks follow through. Uh, That's why his <laughs> podcast remains stuck in the the niche uh, compartment. Exactly niche category. Yes, category. That's a better word for it. Um, but before we move on, I wanted to mention the thing that I was going to mention before you went on that twin digression. There was a a story about a uh, Wi-Fi linked baby monitor getting hacked and. Some some very deranged person t speaking to a child who was old enough to understand words at night on the on the monitor and like basically trying to freak it out. Which really that's sort of like Hannibal Lecter talking to Migs all day. Yeah, but that's oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's an interesting comparison. Um, um, well, but true story. Growing up in New York City, my mom had a police scanner CB thing, and was she that legal? could. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, if we're going to start cataloging the things that my mom did of dubious legality, we'll be here all day. <laughs> but um, hi, Jonas, uh, mom. <laughs> um, but uh, 
every now and then she would catch uh, this is back when she was writing novels and she found it useful to like listen to some of this kind of stuff every now and then she would catch people's baby monitors and uh and it was really creepy i mean she didn't do anything purient or evil or anything like that but but it was creepy to hear people's conversations when they think they're unknown you know when they think they're not being monitored and you can only imagine you know all of these uh you know, guys in Crocs and Palo Alto sitting around listening to my conversations with my wife through Alexa. It is kind of disturbing. Isn't it? So is, is it is it Charlie Cook who has basically every technology of that kind imaginable in his home? I, I I, this so. is not this is this is public knowledge, by the way. He's written about yeah, this no, he's talked He's talked about it on, I think, on the editor. I'm not too. revealing anything yeah. that he's told me in, in, in confidence or something. No, I mean, you didn't reveal what's going on in his basement no i didn't i would never do that yeah we talked about that on episode 11 but anyway yeah well uh yes no he does and uh he's he's a gadget guy he's always been a gadget guy i've talked to him about it and i i like gadgets but i'm not an early adopter i'm not you know i'm not that gung-ho about that stuff i'm only asking because homes like that it'll probably be I, I, I may be ripping this off of a tweet that I saw once, but it, it might be possible in the future to hack a house and basically make it seem haunted. Or like that you won't be able to tell the difference between a hacked house and a haunted house. Or they may be sort of become the same thing, especially once we finally, after uh, more than 100 years, fulfill Edison and Marconi's vision of figuring out technology that allows us to communicate with ghosts. Then it will be, the, cur- the convergence will occur. There's a lot going on there, but I think you're right. You know, I mean, certainly who would have predicted that the Stephen King stories of what Christine and Maximum Overdrive could become technologically possible? Oh, you yeah. You know, where cars and trucks get become sentient. Yeah, and that's amazing, too, because Stephen King doesn't even remember making Maximum Overdrive as a movie. <laughs> so, so Is that a, right? Yeah, he, he was, he, it was in his, uh, his, in his drug phase. Oh. Uh, so, just kind of like... Uh, I think Harrison Ford claims not to remember making the Star Wars Christmas special, or maybe Carrie Fisher, or maybe both of them. Who knows? They probably neither of them remembers the mo- the thing. That's possible. Um, I mean, it's like some of those rock stars who say they really just don't remember 1973 to 1978. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I saw Eric Clapton in an interview basically say something like that, and um, and Tyler Perry too. Um, S- Tyler. Yeah. Wait, so what's what's his name? Steve Tyler. Steve Tyler, yeah. Tyler Perry, Aerosmith guy, right? Yeah, Steve Tyler. Tyler Perry is a very different person. Oh, he's the the, the black movie guy. Yeah, the he's Medea out of Atlanta. Yeah, not That's right. Yeah, I mean, if he he maybe he was on Aerosmith on tour with them once, and I just don't didn't know. But that that would be an interesting tour. I would see that. That could be. Hey man, it's very early. It's like dawn here in Sandpoint. Idaho, and you know I'm going to misspeak from time to time. <laughs> um, I, oh, wow. uh, I got to get back. We got to get on the road. We are driving to Portland today to, um, and then tomorrow we're going to go to the Oregon State Fair. So, uh, do you have any other exciting tales from the road to reveal? Because I, I, you only sort of hinted about your adventures at the beginning of this episode. As what's been like the? Or actually, I should ask it this way: What's the most authentically "quote unquote" real America experience you've had? traveling our our great nation so far well that's an interesting question um i find that the sociology of amusement parks particularly sort of second tier um out of the way amusement parks to be kind of fascinating 
you know, if you go to Universal Studios or Disney World, so many international tourists that it's kind of hard to figure out, you know, the, the, the various gradations of Americans. But I was at Silverwood two days ago, which is in um, Idaho. And they actually, I mean, speaking of Charlie Cook, uh, who's a uh, roller coaster fetishist, they have some excellent, excellent roller coasters, um, including two wood ones, which I still think are among, are, are among the best kinds of roller coasters that were just phenomenal. But, uh, you know, going to, you know, amusement parks in, you know, or, or state fairs, too, and I've been to a bunch of state fairs, um, He's gives, you, <laughs> gives you a great sort of cross-section of, of America. But in terms of, like, pure American Americana experiences so far, um, i got to think about that. I mean, there was Silverwood. Yesterday, we went on this. <laughs> we took the RV on these gravel roads because someone told us at the supermarket this very nice Super One Foods in, uh, in uh, I think, Sandy Hook has got um, the nicest cashiers and checkout girls in all of America. And... Um, one of them told us that there's this great place to go cliff diving or cliff jumping in Green Bay, Idaho. And my daughter loves jumping off of cliffs. And so we agreed to do this and we took the RV, but the National Park Service prohibits RVs past a certain point. So we parked it on the side of the road and hiked about a mile and a half down to this place, Green Bay. And it is beautiful. There's some pictures of it on Twitter. Unfortunately, there's so much smoke in the air from these fires that um, you don't get to appreciate just how unbelievably pretty it would be with crisp blue sky. And uh, and it was interesting to see all, all, just all the dudes, all the people camping there, you know, families and all the rest. We talked to a bunch of people. I went up to one guy to find out where these cliffs were, and he had sort of roped off his own little camping area between some trees. And I had Pippa with me, our Springer Spaniel, and, and that set off this guy's tubular snapping turtles, which is the technical term for Dachshunds. <laughs> and uh, they were going like crazy at us. And he put them in a kennel. I sent Pippa back to my wife. And, um, uh, and we talked for a long time. And he was, was just a good guy hanging out. But I don't, I don't have any like, sort of, at least they don't come to mind, any great This Is America kind of stories. But I definitely would like to come back. I think Idaho doesn't get the credit it deserves as being one of the more geographically or geologically geographically beautiful states it's a great and unending bar conversation to start uh what i've been doing for 20 years now where you ask what are, what's the prettiest or what are the top five prettiest states as defined by like if you had to spend a year as a traveling salesman driving around um how consistently beautiful are they and I think the states that most people, at least if they haven't been there, uh, don't get the credit they deserve are Idaho, Utah, uh, New Mexico are really, really cool, geogra geographically diverse places with all sorts of stuff going on. It's hard to beat states that have lots of coastline, like the California coast is just friggin' awesome, and so is the Washington and Oregon coast. But if you're talking about states that aren't really all, uh, don't have big chunks of ocean coast. Those three, I think Michigan. Yes, I was um, going to put a word in for Michigan, but no Yeah, need. Michigan's real pretty. Um, part, I, I think Tennessee, you know, mountains and water help enormously, which is why, sorry, Senator Sass, you know, Nebraska, eh, 
<laughs> um, and they're pretty parts of. I mean, what's amazing is when you start having these arguments, people get really invested. And you like you, if you start bad mouthing New Jersey, you know they'll say, "Have you been on the Jersey coast?" And they're right. I mean, there's it's amazing. Almost every state has something pretty to it. You know, pound for pound, Alaska is really hard to beat. You know, I went fishing with my father-in-law in Prince William Sound, and it's like a freaking Disney movie there. I mean, otters coming around your boat, you know, eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches off their bellies, and you know, mountains coming straight out of the water. It's just, it's, it's amazing place. Bear, but bears eating errant tourists, just like in all Disney movies. Yes, yes. There's um, we've been to a, quite a few places. Oh, we 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 took the dogs and the daughter. Uh, much more enthusiasm from the dogs on a hike uh, um, in Bozeman and Bear Canyon and kind of felt like we needed some bear spray or uh, this other stuff um, called uh, guns uh, <laughs> because it was pretty. Is that is that pretty, a technical term? Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, you know, as some listeners might know, my wife has a very healthy uh, uh, distrust and fear and respect for the murderous capabilities of bears. And um, she grew up in Alaska, and whenever we watch, whenever there's a commercial or a cartoon or a movie that treats bears as if they're like just big dogs, um, uh, my wife will yell, bear propaganda, they eat your face, and walk out of the room or try to change the channel. Um, and uh, and so we've, we've been in a few places that felt very bear-y, very ursine. And I don't know if that's real America, but it was kind of fun. And and the dogs are just having just an incredible time. Yeah, Although they don't they don't like the RV travel that much. Oh well, you you don't really like it either, do you? No, I don't love it. I mean, I, I like having it, and I, but the whole you know a bunch of people on Twitter are complaining. Why are you in these houses? Why did you go to a hotel? I thought you were doing an RV and blah blah. Go camping, and we part of it is is because all, like on the drive back, we want to be able to just sleep in the thing and keep driving because we want to really hustle to get back. My wife's got to get back to work. I got to get back to work. And we want to do a little of the RV type stuff. But mostly it was out of a plaintive request from our 15-year-old daughter not to be stuck in the back seat with two stinky dogs for 6,000 miles, which we thought was a fair request. And it was to be able to like do picnic kind of stuff and not go hunting for places um, to stop to get you know a good meal. And that stuff has been great. But the dogs will not rest in the back of the RV. <laughs> they are it's incredibly dangerous if you let them have their way. They want to either be in my lap or either the driver's lap or the front passenger lap. And if not there, they want to be at your feet including blocking the brake pad, brake pedal. <laughs> and That's they get a, snark That didn't go Sorry. well in uh I can't remember which final destination movie it is where like a dropped water bottle between the brake pad and the floor causes like a 50 car pileup that kills all the main <laughs> cast. And uh, I thought that was in my dinner with Andre. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and so they're, and they constantly, like, I have these pictures of Zoe and Pippa in the front of the cabin where Pippa, the Springer Spaniel, is at the steering wheel, is the driver's seat, and Zoe's in the passenger seat. And all of these sort of Team Pippa people on Twitter are constantly saying, hey, she's the smart one, she wants to drive, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I, I don't have the heart to tell them that it's because. Pippa's not that bright, and she doesn't understand that when the humans get in the car, that is the seat she's going to be kicked out of, because <laughs> oh. we got to drive. And meanwhile, Zoe understands that she might have a chance of staying in the passenger seat, 
because uh, you know maybe a human won't occupy it. And but they and then they get towards the end of the day they get really cranky because Zoe insists in being the alpha position closest to the humans, and Pippa tries to sneak in, and there's some growling, and you don't want that at 70 miles an hour. So it's been really frustrating that this part of this plan was that people could spread out. My daughter can escape the dogs, which I guess is right, but but they are much more determined to stay close to us in the front, and so we're constantly having to drag them out and all the rest, and that's a bit of a pain. Yeah. But, uh, well, we, got, I give, we have to give Pippa some credit because that video you took of her um, sort of galloping into Lake Michigan has like 60,000 views on Twitter. So, No, I know. It was very popular. And uh, can you imagine if each and every person who watched that video bought a copy of Suicide of the West today? <laughs> um, I would be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Guilt, 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 guilt. All right, my friend. I got to go. My okay. wife is going to kill me. Um, all right, man. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Okay, well, Jonah had to leave, but he forgot to tell everyone to review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever else you can consume podcasts. Not pods, as in Tide Pods. This is a lame joke because that's that was like a... That's so six months ago, Jack, but oh well. So please do. Please review um, generously, kindly. Got to keep all the niche podcasts in their place. Got to keep us in our place. Got to make the suits happy, so please do what you can, and we'll keep putting out remnants. And we will see you later. No, you won't. This is a podcast. That's kind of weird when I do it that way, but oh well. Bye. People, people that aren't going to be carried away. I mean, we're not murderers, in spite of what this undertaker says. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.